0: Hey, it's, uh, it's Christmas time. It's the fourth Sunday of Advent. And so we are one week away from the Christmas weekend. I hope you're as excited as I am. I'm sure uh, family events and things are really kicking up for you. I know they are for me. Um, but this morning, I'm excited to just think clearly and biblically, hopefully, um, about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and find Matthew chapter 14. 14. Matthew chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 13 and go all the way through the end of the chapter. Matthew 14, starting in verse 13. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. As you're finding Matthew 14, I just want to tell you kind of my my thought process as I was reading through and studying through and reading some some writers and some theologians and some commentators about these texts um, and just spending time in the gospel of Matthew Uh, broadly, but then also um, more specifically, Jesus is amazing. As I was reading through Matthew 14 and and just reading through the gospel in general, as I I think about who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing, I just had this thought that Jesus is amazing. And that sounds like Christianity 101, right? Like we all need to say like, well, Jesus is amazing. He's awesome. He's the son of God. Uh, And it's something that doesn't Seem to need to be explicitly stated that Jesus is amazing, but it's true. So this morning we're going to walk alongside Jesus in three stories, two big and one small. And when we walk through these stories, what we're going to see exposed before us is Jesus' beauty, his love, his compassion, and more. In the Advent season of Christmas time, we remember that Emmanuel is a name of Jesus, which means God with us. And this truth that our Lord is with us, God is with us in Christ, is incomparable. This is good news for all of us to enjoy. So this morning, I want us to study Jesus and see what he offers to his disciples. If you and I believe that Jesus is Lord, if we've placed our faith in his work, then we are, by definition, his disciples or his followers But disciple, that word when you read it in your Bible, literally means a learner, someone who is learning, like a student. So all of us as Christians, as disciples, as followers of Christ, have the calling and the opportunity to look at Jesus and learn from him. We need to learn who he is, what he's like, and what he's called us to as his followers. So the title of the message this morning is Learning from the Miraculous, we're going to see in these three stories just miracle after miracle after miracle that Christ is performing to, to show us something. And, and if we have eyes to see, we can learn from him and learn from his work. So I'm going to read for us starting in verse 13 of Matthew 14. And then we'll pray and jump, and jump in. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Just a quick pause for context. Remember, last week we learned about the death of John the Baptist at the hands of Herod the Tetrarch. And what Jesus is hearing is the death of John. He's hearing that his family member, his co-laborer in the kingdom of God has been killed. So he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. So then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Well, let's pray before we go any further. God in heaven, we are astounded once again as we read this story of Jesus, you showing compassion at a difficult time, and you manifesting such love and grace and mercy that you provided for the crowds in a miraculous way. So Lord, we pray that as your disciples, as your followers, as learners, we would read and study and know and be changed by who you are and what you've done. We, we pray in this story and in the, the ones to follow that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to learn kind of three pictures. We're going to see three pictures of who Jesus is. And in the first story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, we're going to see that Jesus, number one, is our compassionate provider. Jesus is our compassionate provider. So we begin our time this morning remembering Remember that Jesus has just heard of the execution of John. And Jesus responds to that news, that terrible, tragic news, by trying to get alone. Jesus, the Son of God, responds to grievous news by grieving. And that seems, again, a kind of a 101, very basic kind of thing. But the fact is, sometimes there are things in our lives that are really sad, I mean, we, we recognize that we live in a world that's broken and fallen and full of sin and full of sickness and full of death and full of heartache and full of hatred and full of sorrow. Maybe it's the death of a loved one or a natural disaster or the diagnosis of a disease. And I'm not trying to paint with too broad of a brush, but I'm, I'm talking right now probably more specifically to our guys in the room than to our girls when I say... You and I, as human beings, were made with emotions. Like we have emotions, they're a part of who we are. And sometimes sorrow and sadness is the right response to the things of this world. There's nothing biblically manly, for example, young men, about shutting down emotions and acting invincible all the time, as if nothing phases you. And we see Jesus was affected by this tragic news and he went away to grieve. But we also aren't led entirely by our emotions either. So notice when Jesus encountered this great crowd, his compassion for the people led him to love them and serve them rather than isolate himself from them. So even when we're finding ourselves in sorrow and in grief, Jesus models for us that to grieve is perhaps the right response But to isolate ourselves from others is probably not. So we see here the compassion of Jesus for those in need. And a big application point for us is that compassion, that word that that Matthew uses, compassion, this stirring of our emotions towards the needs of others, is not passive. It doesn't just sit back in the chair and say, oh, that's so sad. I wish somebody would do something about that. That's not compassion. Biblical compassion is the stirring of the emotions that leads to action. It's active. It does something. So Jesus goes and he heals their sick until it's the evening time. But it got late and the people got hungry and the disciples seemed ready to call it a day. They're looking around going, Jesus, these people are hungry. It's later on in the day. They need to go back into the town so they can find some dinner. But Jesus wanted to teach his disciples in this moment something about serving, something about compassion. Jesus tells them, no, you feed them. They don't need to leave. But obviously the disciples are confused, right? They're confused. They're looking around. There's 5,000 men besides women and children. So it's not, a, it's not a, a liberal estimate. It's probably a pretty conservative estimate to guess that there's at least 10,000 people. Once you add the women and children, there's 10,000 people on this hillside. And the disciples are looking around. We got five loaves of bread and two fish. And there's 10,000 people. Uh, Jesus, I'm, you're seeing something I don't see because <laughs> this isn't going to work. Nobody's going to get any food, really. So Jesus then tells the disciples to bring what they have to him. And this is key. Jesus is able to take what they have and do something miraculous with it. So the expectation is not that Jesus is telling the disciples to come up with something out of nothing. No, Jesus is telling the disciples, come to me with what you have. And let's see what we can do. So over and over, the disciples would go. He took the food. He said a blessing. And he began to break it. And Jesus gives the bread and the, loaves, or the, bread and the fish to the disciples. And the disciples gave it to the crowds. And the disciples would return to Jesus and get more. And go disperse it to the crowds. And the disciples would come back to Jesus and get more and disperse it out to the crowds. And everyone ate their fill. 10,000 people ate their fill. And when they collected the scraps of five loaves and two fishes, they had 12 basketfuls left. Each disciple, a full basket of loaves and fish. Jesus not only had compassion on the people in need... But he meets their needs with his provision. He is the compassionate provider. Now, what does that mean for us as his disciples 2,000 years later? I mean, we're not breaking bread and cutting up fish and serving it to people on the hillside. So what does this mean for you and me? Well, first, we have to believe, according to the word of God, that Jesus knows our needs. And he's able to provide for your needs. He's not stingy with his provision. Right? The, the text tells us that all of the crowd ate their fill and were satisfied and there was an abundance left over. So Jesus is not in the business of being stingy with his grace. He's not stingy with his compassion. He's not ignorant of your issues. He sees, he knows, and his heart towards his people is compassionate. So we can trust him. We can trust him with our problems and our issues and our sorrows and our lack and our grief and our longings. We can go to him because he knows what we need and he's able to provide for our need. Now, some of us, we wrestle, we struggle with trusting other people with our own vulnerabilities, with our own problems, with our own issues, with our own lack. And perhaps the reason why you struggle with that is because it's been taken advantage of before. Maybe you were honest with somebody or vulnerable with someone and they took advantage of you. They sinned against you. They took that knowledge that you gave them and twisted it or did something to distort it to harm you instead of help you. And that's a very real thing in a world that's full of sin and full of sinners. But one of the things we know about God is that he's holy. He's holy. And because God is holy, we believe that he's sinless. He he does not sin. Not only does he not sin, he cannot sin. He is unable to sin. He's unable to act outside of his holy character. Which means it is impossible for God to sin against you. Which means he's the most trustworthy person in the universe because he's not able to take your needs, to take your struggles, to take your issues and use it against you. It would be contrary to his character for him to do that. So because God is holy, because Jesus is sinless, we can run to him and be honest with him and open with him about all our needs, knowing and trusting that he will never do anything other than show compassion and provision. That's the first thing we need to learn. Second, as disciples who have been called to shine as light in the darkness, as Matthew told us back in Matthew chapter 5, you and I need to recognize that God may well display his power in and through us. So Craig Keener, who's a commentator, uh, he is thinking about this passage and he gives us some insights. So listen to what Keener says. He says, We must recognize that some problems in our life require God's intervention. In, in the vast majority of your life and mine, God has seen fit to give us means. So you're sick, God gives us medicine, right? You're tired, well, he's given you rest. Uh, you're lonely, God's given you friends. You have these means by which you can have your needs met. But some problems in your life and in the lives of others require God's intervention. So we're led to pray, and trust in his power to meet our needs, to provide for our needs. God usually begins with what we have. We already talked about this earlier. He begins with what we have. So we notice what he's already provided for us. God has given you and I immense blessing already. We are wealthy people in many senses of the word. We notice what he's already provided, and then we walk in faithfulness, knowing that he's able to continue to provide. He doesn't always perform, or he doesn't, perform miracles to entertain us. That's something we need to remember. Keener tells us, he doesn't perform miracles to entertain. He's not a magician, right? He's not trying to get eyeballs to look at him and just wonder at how amazing he is. That's not the point of a miracle. And he's not going to perform miracles in your life and my life so that people might gawk at us. We're not the subject, right? We're not the person to see. So we don't manipulate God for our own gain. So so notice, These truths about what we're talking about will shape our prayers. We go to Him in prayer recognizing God has already met our needs in so many ways. He's our provider, He's compassionate, He's faithful. And we know that He's not going to be manipulated by us for our own personal sinful gain. So we don't pray to God asking for idolatrous things. We don't pray to God asking for Him to meet our needs in such a way that the world might look at us and say, Isn't He awesome? Isn't She amazing? Finally, God is never intimidated by the magnitude of our problems. God is never intimidated by the magnitude of our problems. So you and I, as needy people, can go to Jesus, like these crowds, with all of our problems. Whether it's sickness that has to be miraculously healed or an empty stomach doesn't matter how big or how small. God is not intimidated by the magnitude of your problems. So you can go to him with everything that you have. Jesus is trying to teach the disciples these things. And he's trying to teach us as well. Let's keep reading, starting in verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And began beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Second picture, second image for us to see this morning. Number two, Jesus is our empowering rescuer. Jesus is our empowering rescuer. Matthew gives us a quick movement from the feeding to the next story. And John, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 6, verse 15, gives us a little bit more information as to why they wanted to get out there so quickly. John tells us that there was some energy among the crowd after they've seen and witnessed this amazing miracle to take Jesus right there and then, take him to Jerusalem and install him as king. I mean, they were motivated after this, after this meal to, to take Jesus and do something politically insane, right? To over, try to overthrow the rule of Rome and put Jesus on the throne as king of Jerusalem. Israel. But Jesus recognized this and avoided the spectacle. And so he went, as he originally intended, to get alone with God to pray. His disciples, meanwhile, were struggling on the sea against a powerful storm. And it says in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them. Now, the fourth watch uh, in, Roman, in the time of the Roman Empire, they would split the night from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. into four watches. And that's how they would take turns and on their watches. So the fourth watch would be the last watch, which is between 3 and 6 a.m. Now you might think that's not really important information, except if it's 3 to 6 a.m. and the disciples are still fighting against the wind and the waves, it means they have been up all night fighting, all night going to battle against nature. They are exhausted, they are delirious, they are tired, they're worn out from this unstoppable force that they've been going up against all night long. And then off in the distance, right before dawn, they notice a figure moving on the water. Perhaps at this point, anything's possible, these guys are saying. Maybe it's a ghost. So exhausted and delirious, the disciples were filled with fear because they didn't know. They've been beat down all night long and now this other thing, this potential threat is now walking on the water towards them but it's not some mythical spirit, right? It's Jesus finding them in their time of need so he calls out, take heart it is I, do not be afraid and as a quick aside we just need to think about reading the Bible like a Christian for a moment we need to remember that this Bible, these 66 books from Genesis to Revelation is one grand story It's written over hundreds of years by numerous authors, but it's all inspired by the Spirit. It has a perfect unity to it. And so we shouldn't be surprised. We should actually expect to hear echoes of other themes and ideas and and truths when we read Scripture. When we read here in Matthew 14, for example, I believe Matthew has the story of the Exodus in his mind as he's writing this down. He's thinking about as Jesus feeds the great multitude miraculously, that God did the same thing to his followers in the wilderness with manna and quail. And now we see Jesus exercising authority and power over the sea, calling out the, that his people should not fear or to take heart. Why? Why should they not fear? Why should they take heart? Well, because Jesus says, it is I. Or... As the literal Greek says, ego a me," he says, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. This Jesus is more than a man. He's God in the flesh. And so when we read the Bible, we need to be alert to thinking about how this Bible is speaking about itself. So when we read, for example, Jesus walking on the water and telling them, I am, do not be afraid. Well, of course, this should remind us of God leading Moses to the Red Sea and exercising authority and miraculous power over it by doing something with the water that ought, that should not, cannot be done in, in nature. Okay, back to the story. Jesus walks up and Peter, the foolhardy one, the brash one, the, the bold one, calls out to Jesus to command him to walk on the water. And Jesus tells him to come. And he does. <laughs> I mean, you imagine like being Bartholomew on the boat, just like wrapped up in fear. And you see this exchange between Peter and Jesus. And Peter is like, tell me to come out on the water. And Jesus says, come on. I mean, if you're Bartholomew, you got to look back at Peter and be like, what are you going to do now? You going to do it? You know, like, well, I mean, I'm not saying anything. I'm Bartholomew. I don't say anything at all. right? And then you see Jesus, I mean, you see Peter put one leg over the boat and put another leg over the boat and he's not falling in the water, but he's standing. Peter, a mere man, flesh and blood like you and me, is walking on the water. Like this is a Bible school story, but like don't, this is Amazing. He's standing on the waves. How is this possible? Well, don't miss this. How is it possible? Because he was empowered by the word of the Lord. Jesus calls him to come. And when Jesus calls his followers to come, he empowers them to obey. By the Spirit of God, you and I, as Jesus' disciples, are empowered to obey his word. Because of the work of Christ for us, we can now live in the spirit to do the impossible. Not because of us, not because we're amazing, not because we had anything in and of ourselves that merited some kind of favor from God, but because of who God is. Because God is with us, because he is in us. So Peter experienced this empowerment in an amazing way. But even he struggled to keep his eyes on Christ. Peter knew that he could not save himself from the onslaught of the sea's chaos. And the wind and the waves were more terrifying on the water than they were on the boat, for sure. And so he began to sink. And when he began to sink, he recognized his own frailty, his own neediness, his own weakness. And so as he sank, he cried out the only thing he could. He called for rescue. And Jesus was there. Lord, save me, Peter says. And immediately, Matthew tells us, Jesus' hand is on it. He reaches out his hand and took hold of him. And there's there's just an amazing simplicity to this, isn't there? Peter needed rescuing. He cries out for rescue, and Jesus is there to rescue him. Jesus lightly rebuked his young disciple, right? Why did you doubt? I'm sitting here walking on the water towards you, you're walking on the water. Why'd you doubt? We're here. I'm with you. You don't need to get your eyes off of me and onto your circumstances and onto the wind and onto the waves. I know they're scary, but I'm here. Don't be afraid. Take heart. Why did you doubt? It's a question that you and I need to ask ourselves regularly as we begin to take our eyes off of Jesus and put them back onto our circumstances and think about all of the ways in which the things of this world are perhaps against us, or the own desires of our hearts are against us, or the things among our friends and family are against us, and we fall into despair and we fall into that neediness, we fall into that doubt. Jesus says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Notice what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't walk away from Peter. Jesus picks him up and puts him back in the boat. We must not miss that Peter models for us what being a learner is all about. In this moment, Peter is not perfect, but he's learning. He's learning what it means to trust Jesus. And and we need to learn, as we look at Peter's example, that trusting Jesus is an act of obedience. We will waver. We will fall short. But his hand will always be there to take hold of us. And so when Jesus and Peter got back into the boat, the storm stopped. Just like the last scene on the water with Jesus and the disciples, great fear turns into great calm. And so notice what this miraculous event produces. Look again in verse 13. 33, after the wind ceased, those in the boat worshipped him. They worshipped him. These disciples, all knowing as good Jews that worship is reserved for God alone, now see fit to worship Jesus in the boat. And they confess, surely you are the Son of God. So as followers of Jesus, we can live our lives empowered by His Spirit because He was and is our rescuer. And even though our eyes often get off of Jesus and onto our circumstances, even though we fall short, His hand is there to pull us from the waters. And in that faithful obedience, both in our own lives and in the lives of others, Jesus will be praised. As you follow Jesus as a learner, as a disciple, and you follow after him in broken, stuttering obedience, it will draw your heart to worship. And when we witness our brothers and sisters around us doing the same thing, crawling and stumbling by the empowering grace of the Spirit of God towards greater holiness and greater obedience and greater faith, we too will be drawn up to worship Him. I mean, this is the power of testimony, right? When we hear what God is doing in the lives of other people, often our hearts are inflamed to praise God and to worship Him for His sustaining power and His grace and His goodness in the lives of other people. And we're reminded of our own life. We're reminded of all the ways that He's done that for us. It's why I love baptisms. Right, Because when I hear that story about this person who is far from God, dead in his trespasses and sins, and through some means hears the gospel and repents and believes, I'm reminded that I was the same way. I was dead. I was blind. I was deaf. I was running headlong in the opposite direction of life. And by God's grace, my eyes were opened and my head was turned and my heart started beating. So when I witnessed a baptism, I'm reminded of my own salvation. And I'm I'm reminded once again that God is worthy to be praised. So Jesus' stance towards us is compassion. He is our provider. He empowers us. And He's our rescuer, our Savior. So as we conclude, we're just going to look at one more small summary story. Verse 34. Verse 34. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Him... They sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So in this little summary story that Matthew gives us, we learn third thing, third picture for us to see. Jesus is our affirming healer. He is our affirming healer. So Matthew just gives us a little summary of Jesus' ministry among the people of the Gennesaret on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They recognize Jesus. So he comes off the boat. He's recognized by them. And so they call out to the other towns and the surrounding villages and they bring all of their sick to Jesus because they know, they know that this man is able to heal. They know that this man is sent from God, that he's able to bring life out of death and healing out of sickness and brokenness. And so they come to him And they're convinced, if we could just touch his garment, if we could just grab onto a tassel, we know that we will be made well. And the text tells us, as many as touched it were made well. So I want us to see here that Jesus is able to bring healing to us. In the same way that he's able to heal those in Gennesaret, he's able to heal us. And the fact is, all of us carry around various wounds. But Jesus is not repelled by them or afraid of them. Your wounds may be physical, maybe a disability, something that happened to you. Your wounds may be spiritual. Spiritual. Your wounds may be mental or emotional. There may be something that's happened to you, some kind of traumatic event that you carry around that people don't see, but nonetheless your body and your soul has kept the score of how things have gone in your life. And some of us who know our own wounds enough to see them as painful and as broken as they are, we wonder if, if other people would actually see us with all of our wounds exposed, would they run? Would they be disgusted? Would they be confounded? Would they be offended? Would they turn away from us? But Jesus is not repelled by wounds. He doesn't turn and run when he sees something that needs to be fixed or something that needs to be healed. He's not threatened by them. Instead, Jesus is drawn To our wounds, because he's a healer. Additionally, the work of Christ for the sick of Gennesaret, just like the work of Christ for you and me as his disciples, is an affirmation of our faith. These people came to Jesus believing that he was able to heal, they were convinced in their minds, convinced in their hearts, that Jesus is able to bring healing out of their sickness. And then they witnessed their faith being confirmed through his ministry. All who touched it were made well, Matthew says. So you and I now have the opportunity to come to Jesus believing that he is able to heal us as well. And more than our physical infirmities, this sickness or illness or these very real problems of our bodies, we recognize there is a a temporality to our bodies. But there's something immortal about who we are. There's something eternal going on in us. And Jesus is able not to just heal the temporary thing, but the immortal thing. He can bring us from spiritual death to spiritual life. And as we learn from Jesus, as we continue to follow him as as his disciples, our faith can be affirmed. We witness his work in us and in others. And when we witness his work, our faith is renewed. So not only do I love baptism, but I love the Lord's Supper. We're actually taking the Lord's Supper this morning in just a little while in the morning service. And I think about kind of the words of institution. We're kind of jumping ahead to the end of Matthew, Matthew 26, when Jesus is around his disciples at the last supper, this Passover meal, and he takes bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body broken for you. He takes wine and he pours it into a cup and he disperses it out he says, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you. When we take the Lord's supper together, we're reminded that Jesus has taken our greatest wound, which is spiritual death, And he's conquered it and he's overcome it and he's given us life. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Why do we proclaim the Lord's death? Because it's in his death that we have life. And we, as the people of God, gathering together in the power of the Spirit, united by faith, living spiritually because of his work, we gather together around that table and take the bread and take the cup and we proclaim the Lord's death together. So what that means is when you and I go into that room and take the Lord's supper, we're looking around at the rest of the people of God at Lakeview and saying, he's made you alive. He's made you alive. He's made you alive. He's made you alive. And we proclaim this together. He's healed you. He's healed you. He's healed you. And we proclaim this together and we take and eat, and we take and drink, and our faith is renewed, and our souls are nourished. So my hope for you this morning is that, like I said at the beginning, you would believe and trust and see that Jesus is amazing. That he's our compassionate provider, our empowering rescuer, our affirming healer. And he offers all of this to anyone who would come, He says to the crowds, he says to Peter on the water, he says to the people of Gennesaret, come. He says to you and me, come. And you can have life, you can have healing, you can have wholeness, you can be made right, you can be empowered to do the impossible. Let me pray for us.